Good evening and Merry Christmas. It is good to be with you this evening as we are indeed uh, drawn together by a story. We're drawn together by a story that is familiar to us, and yet if we stop and we think about it, it was a story that was very, very unexpected to those who first lived it, to those who experienced it, and to those who first witnessed it. But tonight, what we're going to be talking about as we look at the Christmas story together is how to find hope in unexpected places. Because buried within this story is indeed hope, which not only gives us hope tonight, but is a hope that is not just for here, but is for all people. And so I'd ask that before we dive into our story for tonight, that you would please bow your heads and that you'd pray with me. Let's pray together. Lord God of all hope, we thank you that you have drawn us here tonight. As we reflect on and meditate on this beautiful story that contains within it incredible promises. And so God, as we come before your word, we ask that you would give us open hearts and minds to receive the message that you have for us tonight. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we are looking at the Christmas story. And as I said, you know, just a few moments ago, this is a story that most of us in our culture today are at least familiar with. We know the basics, right? We know the main characters. We know Mary and Joseph. We know the baby Jesus and the shepherds, the wise men. And yet, if we stop and we think about it, what Christians have insisted down through the centuries is that this story is true. It's not just a quaint tale that we like to tell at a certain time of the year, but rather it's a story that's true and that it's a story that when you take a closer look at it, it is simultaneously scandalous and beautiful. Simultaneously scandalous and beautiful. Here's what I mean. If we were to read this story the way the first people who had received it would have read it, we would realize that this story is a pretty bizarre one. It's quite unexpected because Christians were insisting that this story was about a king, a savior who had come into the world to redeem all people. And yet, if you were a first century reader of this tale, you would look at the story and you'd say, this is not how you tell the story of a king. This is not how the tale of a savior should go. First and foremost, the first strike that it has against it as a story is that it takes place in the wrong location. This is what we read when we take a look at Luke 2. It says that Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to, uh, to Judea to Bethlehem. The story takes place in Bethlehem, and yet we often take that for granted. But first century readers would have read that story and they would have been like, really, Bethlehem? That's where this king is supposed to be born? Because you see, in their day, in their time, the religious center of the world for them was Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital city of ancient Israel. It was the places where the kings used to reign. It's the throne of King David was there. And surely a king, a promised savior, was supposed to be born in a palace. He was supposed to be born into wealth. He was supposed to be born in the capital, in the center. And yet that's not what we read. We read that Joseph goes to Bethlehem. Bethlehem, this tiny town that was on the outskirts of Jerusalem. 
It had no majesty to make it stand out among the cities of the world. It was a poor place inhabited by poor people. In fact, we read, if you look at Matthew's gospel, when when the wise men first go to look for this promised king, they don't end up in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is not their first type. They They go to Jerusalem. They go to the palace. They go to King Herod and they say, where's the child who is to be born? They were looking for a king where royalty lives. And yet right here, this story says, no, that's not where this king is born. That's not where this tale takes place. It takes place in Bethlehem. It takes place on the outskirts. That's the first strike against it. But then there's a second strike against it. And that's the people, the characters that are involved in this tale. Because we read that Joseph went there to register with Mary, who is pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now, again, we read about the Virgin Mary, and we kind of picture her the way she's depicted up here on the screen, this, this beautiful, immaculate woman re- dressed in, in glowing robes. And yet, when we look at this verse, the first century readers would have read that, and they would have said, wait, wait a second, what? The very sentence itself smacks with scandal because it says that he went there with Mary who was pledged to be married to him. See, one of the key actors in the story is actually an unwed mother. Mary and Joseph, they hadn't tied the knot yet. They were not legally husband and wife. This is a story about an unwed teenage mom and her boyfriend. You see, Mary, when Gabriel first came to her, when he said, you are most favored, the Lord is with you and and you will give birth to a son and he will be a promised savior. When Mary said yes to that proclamation of the angel, what she was saying yes to was she was also saying yes to becoming a social outcast. Because although she knew, and although because Joseph knew that the child that she was going to give birth to was a miracle, was a gift from God, the rest of society would have looked at her and they would have seen her as an outcast. They would have seen her as an, un, as an immoral person. Because in that culture, in those days, you did not give birth to a child before you were married. You did not get pregnant outside of wedlock. We have to remember this is a first century Middle Eastern culture. And had Joseph come out and actually accused Mary of adultery, she would have been executed, and Mary knew that. See, at the heart of this story is this unwed teenage mother who was on the, out, who was on the outskirts of her own society. She would have been ostracized. She would have been looked down upon. She was a marginalized person. In fact, one of my favorite pictures of of Mary and the baby Jesus is actually a painting that comes to us from the country of India. It was painted by a man named Jyoti Sahi. He painted this image of Mary with her child, and he entitled this painting Dalit Madonna. You see, in Indian society, there is this class of people called Dalits. We, We translate that term untouchables in English. And the untouchables are people who are actually below the, the, the proper caste system in Hindu, cult, in Hindu society and in the Hindu religion. They were the lowest, they're the lowest of the low. And in fact, the only jobs that untouchables can get are the jobs that everybody else are, thinks are too distasteful. Their, their, their job is basically to, to deal with waste management, to take out other people's trash. 
And Jyoti Sahi, by painting Mary this way and calling her Dalit Madonna, understands a little something about that story that we sometimes miss. And that is this, that Mary was saying yes, yes to becoming the mother of the Savior, but she was also saying yes to becoming an untouchable. But she's not the only strange and scandalous character in this story. Because there are others who are part of this tale that, again, first century readers would have looked at and would have been like, why are they there? The other group that I'm talking about is the shepherds. The shepherds to whom the angels come, the angels come and they announce this great news that a savior has been born. And when we think about the angels appearing to the shepherds, we often have these kind of quaint pictures in our heads of these, of these angels that look, you know, soft and gentle, glowing in the sky. And these guys wearing bathrobes down below with their fluffy animals being like, wow. But that's not what we're talking about because the shepherds in that society and in that day were outcasts too. That often to become a shepherd was the only job you could take because usually you were running from something. Shepherds, by their very natures, lived on the outskirts. They lived on the margins. They didn't have a home. They followed, around, they followed their flocks around in the wilderness. And oftentimes, the people who took those jobs were there because they had a past. They had a history. The only place that they would be welcome was with other rejects. In fact, a better way to picture these guys is maybe like these two gentlemen. This is a rough and tumble group. And actually, many scholars believe that given the proximity of, of the shepherds and their herds in Bethlehem to Jerusalem, what they believe is that the, the, the flocks of sheep that they were looking over were actually sheep that, that were there for the temple. That they were owned by others and that when people needed to make a sacrifice in the temple, they would take one of these sheep and they'd bring it up to Jerusalem to sacrifice it. And what's so ironic about that is that the, sh the shepherds were watching over sheep that were more acceptable in the house of God than they were. And again, if you're looking at this story as a first century reader and you see unwed teenage mother and her boyfriend, you see that the first people to witness it are rejects and outcasts, shepherds on the margins. You would have looked at this and been like, strike two. There's no way this story is about any savior. There's no way this could possibly be a story about a king. That's not the way their script is supposed to go. But then we read that it, that it happens in kind of bizarre and unexpected circumstances because we learn that when Mary and Joseph actually get to Bethlehem and they're looking for a place to stay, we learn that there was no room available for them. And again, this is strange because in that culture and in those days, hospitality was like the number one value. If a stranger came to your village or town, you went out of your way to make sure that they had the best place to stay. And yet Mary and Joseph, because yes, the town was crowded, but also because there were probably some people who knew a little bit about their history, looked at them and said, there's not enough space here for you. Until they did eventually find one hospitable person. This person didn't have any room to give. So Mary and Joseph end up with the animals. Mary gives birth to her child and she lays him in a manger. And it's not this peaceful scene that we see up here. A manger is nothing more than maybe a rough wooden or stone feeding box. It would have been filled with dirty hay for the animals to eat. The savior, this king, is born in squalor. He's born the poorest of the poor, not welcomed in. 
surrounded by his mom, his dad, and some animals. And again, first century readers would have looked at this story and they would have said, strike three. These are the wrong people. This is the wrong place. And these are the wrong circumstances. Wrong people, wrong place, wrong circumstances. This is a scandalous story. And yet Christians have insisted for 2,000 years that buried within this scandalous story are some beautiful promises from God. Buried within this scandalous story are some beautiful promises from God. You see, the first question we have to ask ourselves is why this way? Why tell the story in this way? Why, why would God do it this way? Then the answer that the, the Christians give over and over again is the reason God tells the story this way is because it's true. You look at all the circumstances and you realize that if you were to make up a religion and try to get people to follow you in the first century, this is not the way to do it. This is not the way to tell the story. This is not the way to get people fired up about following some great king, some great liberator. And so as we look at this story, we need to realize that it is either the worst lie possibly told or it's true. There's no middle ground. The Christmas story isn't just some quaint tale that we tell to our kids around the Christmas tree at a certain time of the year. It doesn't give us that option. You have to make a choice when you look at this tale. You need to determine that it's either a lie or it absolutely happened. In fact, the angel Gabriel tells Mary this when Mary is astounded that she's about, that this poor, uneducated teenage, unwed teenage girl, that she's about to give birth to the Savior. She says, how is this possible? And the angel tells her this. He says, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God, for nothing will be impossible with God. See, what God is telling us in this very human story is that he is the God of the impossible. The time and time again, he breaks expectations. He does the unexpected. He does the impossible so that we would know that the only way it could have possibly happened is if he has done it. The only way it could have possibly happened is if God's hand was at the center of it all. But there's something else beautiful about this story. When we look at the people and the places that are included, when we realize that it's a marginalized town, a story filled with marginalized people, taking place on the outskirts of power. We realize that this story truly is good news of great joy for all people. So the angels tell the shepherds, they say, don't be afraid, for I have good news of great joy that is for everyone. See, Jesus wasn't born in the halls of power. He wasn't born to kings. He didn't just come for the rich and the prosperous. He didn't just come for the haves. He came for the have-nots. He came for those on the outskirts. He came for those that are overlooked. He came for the marginalized. See, this story tells us that God is a God who loves the overlooked. God is a God who loves the marginalized. God is a God who comes and dwells in the midst of not just the very, very rich, but also the very, very poor. We learn that he is a savior for the lowest of men to the highest of kings. It's good news of great joy for all people. That's the kind of king that has come. 
That's the kind of savior that Jesus is. But there's another beautiful piece in the midst of this scandalous story. And it's the gift that's given. You know, in the ancients were given visions and prophecies about the one who was to come in the, in the prophet Isaiah. God tells them this. He says that the gift that I am going to give to my people, this salvation, is a child. He says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, the scandalous part of this story, perhaps the most scandalous part, is that this is a story about a God who becomes human. About the God who dwells in the heavens, comes down to earth. That the creator comes to his creation, and he doesn't just come to his creation, he becomes one of his creation. And the reason this is so scandalous is because it flies in the face of every other religious narrative out there. You look at any other religion and what does it tell you? It tells you that the divine is up there, that we are down here, and that it is our job to climb the mountain, to live up to the divine standards, to follow the right commandments, and to obey all the rules, that it's up to us to seek the truth, to find the light. And yet this story tells us what? It tells us that the truth and the light comes to us. That God doesn't wait for us to clean our act up, but he enters into our world in order to be in relationship with us, in order to love us. In fact, when the angel appears to Joseph and tells him what is to happen, he tells Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save the people from their sins. The child's very name means God saves And what we're told is that he comes not for the morally perfect, not for the ultra-religious, not for the spiritual haves, but for the spiritual have-nots. For the people who don't have it all together, for people who've actually turned their backs on God, for people who've walked away from him, for people who have said, I'm not interested in the Lord, or people who would say, maybe like the shepherds, I, if God knew what I've really done in my life, he wouldn't call me. And yet this story says, that's exactly who he's calling. No matter what your past is, no matter your history, no matter all the ways you may have fallen short, the scandal of this story is that God came to you. He's come to us. He came to save us. One of the earliest Christian writers, the Apostle Paul, says that we know the love of God in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He doesn't wait for us to climb the mountain. He comes down, he's born a poor kid in Bethlehem to poor parents, surrounded by a bunch of outcasts because those are the people that he's come to save. That's us. That's you and me. It's those who don't have it together. See, this is a scandalous story, but it's a story that contains within it some beautiful promises. It it tells us that God is a God of hope and that often hope is found in the places you would least expect it. That's just when you feel like there is no hope. Just when you feel like you're at the end of your rope, you're on the edge, you're marginalized. What God says is, I am there, I am present with you, and I have come to save you. To give you eternal life. That you might dwell with me. And this news isn't just for you. It's for everybody. It's good news of great joy for all people. 
And the proper response to that story is to say, joy to the world for the Lord has come. The proper response to that story is like Mary to say, may it be unto me as the Lord has spoken. The response is to say, like the shepherds, let us go and tell others about what we have seen. The response is, even if you're sitting there and you're saying, I'm not sure, is at the very least like the shepherds to go and explore it for yourself. But the invitation is that when you do, you will experience the unexpected hope of a God who so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's why we sing joy to the world. That's the gift of Christmas. That's the story that we tell and that we proclaim. And that's the promise that's given to you and to me. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, we give you thanks that you have given us a story that, although bizarre, although strange, is beautifully true. You came into our world. You inhabited time and space to save us. You didn't wait for us to come to you. You came down for us. When we were on the edge, when we were at our lowest, when we were outcasts, you said, They are mine. And so, Lord, we pray that that Christmas message would indeed dwell richly in our hearts. But, Lord, we also pray that we would be a people who would go out and share that message with the world to let all people know know that there is joy for the Lord has come. There is hope because you are indeed wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for spending some time in God's Word with us during this message. It was recorded live in worship at Trinity Church in Lyle, Illinois, where God is leading us on our mission to look, live, and love more like Jesus. Would you like to know more about our relationship with Christ or more about Trinity, who we are, what we believe, and where and when you might join us in worship or growth group? Please visit our website at tlc4u.org. That's the letters T-L-C the number four, and the letter U, dot org. May God bless you and yours abundantly through Jesus Christ. Thanks again for listening.